Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And today we're going to be talking about body image around the world and why body image is a global issue. Right, but before we get there, happy third birthday to our little car pod. Woo! <laughs> where's the cake? Uh, I don't know. Where is the cake? Also, where's the party at? <laughs> <laughs> what will the next three years bring? What do you think, Nadia? Wow, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, maybe this one is for you. What topics would you like us to cover? Yeah, we'll actually really love to hear. Tweet at us. Yeah. Anyway, back to body image around the world. Based on a quick scan of the academic literature, I think you'll be forgiven for thinking body image concerns are exclusively a Western affliction. Like, they only affect people in places like the US, the UK, Western Europe, Australia, that kind of thing. Mm, Yeah, and we've mentioned this a couple of times before on the podcast. But body image research beyond the UK, the US and Australia is, well, frankly, pretty sparse. Although it does feel like this is slowly starting to change. Mm, Yeah, right. And on the podcast, we do try to make conscious effort to bring in research from other countries where we can, partly because we know we have listeners from all over the world. So it kind of feels odd to just talk about research from the UK, Australia and the US. Right. And in this episode, to discuss body image around the world, we'll be joined by global body image expert Viram Swamy, who's a professor at Angela Ruskin University in Cambridge, as well as being professor at Perdana University in Malaysia. We're also going to hear from Carl's Kirsty Garbett, a research associate who's recently spent some time doing some body image fieldwork in Accra, Ghana. Exciting stuff. Well, we better get a move on then, shan't we, Nadia? You're right, Jade. Let's go. As we said in the introduction, most of what we know about body image is based on experiences from people in the UK, US and Australia, partly because this is where many of the body image researchers live and work. Yeah, but just because the majority of academic literature on body image is from these countries, it doesn't mean that body image is not globally relevant, and we have growing evidence to suggest that this is untrue, and that people from around the world are adversely affected by body image concerns. So, for example, two recent reports by Edelman Intelligence and commissioned by Dove show that body image concerns are truly a global issue among girls and women and that greater body confidence has a lasting impact on confidence, resilience, life satisfaction for girls and women around the world. Oh, and Philippa Deirdre's consulted on these, didn't she? Yeah, that's right. So our regular listeners will know that Philippa is a professor here at the Centre for Appearance Research and heads up the Dove Self-Esteem Project research team. Mm, And so back to the reports... We don't have time to go through all the details published in the reports, but we wanted to share a few of the key findings related to the impact of how girls and women in these countries feel about their bodies. The first report, called the Dove Global Beauty and Confidence Report, was published in 2016 and looked at body image in 6,000 women aged from 18 to 64 in 13 countries. I've got a list here, so I might as well go ahead and read them out. (laughs) Yep, go for it. (laughs) Okay. So India, China, the UK, the USA, Brazil, Japan, Turkey, Canada, Germany, Russia, Mexico, South Africa and Australia. That's them all. Um, The report also surveyed 4,500 girls aged 10 to 17 in the same countries but apart from Australia using online questionnaires. And what did they find, Nadia? You explain this part. (laughs) Okay, so the report found 9 in 10 women and 8 in 10 girls with low body esteem said that they avoided important life activities and sharing their opinion with others because they didn't feel good about the way they looked. 
That's scary, right? And mm. just to expand on body esteem, because I'm not sure if we've used that term before on the podcast, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think we have. Uh, it's quite hard to keep track of all these different terms. <laughs> yeah, I know. Agreed. Um, so body esteem refers to a person's self-evaluation of their body, like how they feel about their weight, shape and just general appearance. Right, exactly. Thanks, Jade. So the second report, published a year later, focused on... The second report, published a year later, focused on girls aged 10 to 17 in 14 countries. And I have a list here too. (laughs) Good. (laughs) So that's India, USA, UK, Brazil, China, Japan, Turkey, Canada, Germany, Russia, Mexico, South Africa, Australia and Indonesia. With over 5,000 girls in total completing short online questionnaires. Right, and this second report found that 55% of girls reported not spending time with friends and family, um, participating in activities outside the house, or trying for a team or a club if they're unhappy with the way they look. Right, and this report separated participants into those with high, medium, and low body esteem scores, and found that 50% of the girls with the low body esteem score at times stopped eating, binged, or skipped meals because they don't feel good about the way they look compared to 10% of the girls in the kind of high body esteem group. Which is quite a difference, right? So taken together, these reports suggest that girls and women around the world from different cultures can experience body image concerns, and the link between poor body image and disordered eating is global. And shall we spend just a few minutes talking about one or two other cross-cultural body image studies then, Nadia? Sure. So there's one large-scale study led by Marita McCabe in 2012 which compared body satisfaction in adolescent girls and boys in eight countries. I've got a list now, Jade. (laughs) Um, So Australia, Fiji, Malaysia, Tonga, Tongans in New Zealand, China, Chile and Greece. And overall, the lowest body satisfaction scores were reported in girls and boys in China and Greece and in girls in Malaysia. The study also found significant gender differences after controlling for BMI in Australia, Chile, Greece, Fiji, Malaysia and Tonga, with boys reporting higher body satisfaction compared to girls in all of these countries, with the exception of Greece, where girls actually reported higher body satisfaction. Hmm, interesting why in Greece it's the reverse with girls and boys. And side note, um, I wonder how many of our listeners are actually in these countries that we've mentioned. In yeah, our that's a good point. I wonder. I wonder. We'll have to check our stats. Check them. Yeah. So um, controlling for BMI, by the way, just means that body mass index was taken into account in the analysis. So we can be more sure that differences were indeed to gender rather than something else in the case of BMI, for example. Right, and this is relevant because we often find differences in body satisfaction due to BMI, particularly in girls. There's a general trend that higher BMI equals higher body satisfaction. And among boys, there's a curve linear relation. There's a curve. There's a curve linear relationship. So a low BMI and a high BMI are associated with greater body dissatisfaction. So it's kind of looking at those boys in the middle there so that's what we typically find Mm, right and this kind of reflects the ideals for men to be lean and muscular so being too thin is not desirable either right yeah and just quickly these are general trends so there obviously can be within subject variation meaning at the individual level a girl with a low bmi for example can be more dissatisfied than a girl with high bmi it's just when we're looking at the overall picture Mm, general trend so we're getting very technical with our terms actually Nadia um (laughs) helpful though if you ever are reading an academic paper 
Anyway, another study led by Mickey Brackoff and published in 2016 compared Japanese adolescent body dissatisfaction to those in China, Malaysia, Australia, Tongo and Fiji. Using the same scale as the McCabe study Nadia just mentioned, um, this study found that despite having among the lowest BMIs in the study, Japanese adolescents reported lower levels of body satisfaction than adolescents in the other countries, so Malaysia, Australia, Tonga and Fiji. The authors linked this to the importance and related pressure of kind of popular media in Japan and this impact on Japanese adolescents. Yeah, isn't there stuff about anime and manga having an influence on how people feel about the way they look in Japan as well? I feel like I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. I'd really love an in-depth episode on body image and disordered eating in Japan because I think it's quite a unique topic area. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really good idea. There was a researcher as well from Japan at our Appearance Matters 8 conference, Maho Isno. And she spoke about an extreme preference for thinness among Japanese women, which kind of links to the promotion of thinness in Japanese media, like you're saying, Nadia. She would be great to get on. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I think it's probably a good time to to hear from our first guest. Yes, definitely. So our first guest is Viren Swamy, a professor of social psychology at, at Anglia Ruskin University and director and professor at the Centre for Psychological Medicine at Pradhana University in Malaysia. Viren is one of the pioneers of cross-cultural body image research, looking at differences in beauty ideals and body image around the world, and is a prolific scholar with over 300 academic publications and three books. Um, Incredible, isn't it? Just to add that in. Viren is also a chartered psychologist and associate fellow at the British Psychological Society and an associate editor for the journal Body Image. Right, so I spoke to Virum a few months ago on Skype, just before I went to Malaysia. Um, and you two bonded over Malaysian connection, didn't you, Nadia? I like to think so, especially over the Malaysian food, which, let me tell you, is the best food in the world, no question. I'm still so sad, like, mourning not being able to eat Malaysian food and every I'm day sad. of the week. I'm sad that I don't get to see all the pictures of the food that you're eating. <laughs> I did bring back you some mooncake, though, didn't I? That's true, that was yeah. delicious. But I also want you to cook all the other food that you put in the pictures, please. <laughs> Shh. Don't publicly shame me on the podcast. You know I can't cook. The gift of cooking definitely bypassed me, went straight to my sister. Well, it's never too late to learn, <laughs> Nadia. I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about food. I'm already getting hungry. Let's hear the interview with Vera. Yeah, just a quick note. It's quite a long one, but I think it makes sense when you listen. Mm, oh, definitely. And please excuse the drilling, by the way. Yeah, always happens to me. <laughs> always. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Hi, Viram. Thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters podcast. It's really great to have you. Um, yeah, thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So as you know, we're talking about body image around the world. And I know you're an expert in this area. So we thought it'd be really great to have your insights and input. But kind of before we get into some of the research that you've been doing, I think something really interesting for me when we're talking about body image around the world, especially from a research perspective, is that we kind of quote know a lot more about body image in the West, I feel, than maybe elsewhere in the world. And I wonder if you agree with that. And then if so, why you think this might be? I think as a general statement, the idea that we know more about body image in, in certain populations like the West is certainly true. I, I think historically, if you look uh, at historical research on body image, we used to lo- know a lot more about is- these issues in white women. But now we know a lot more about body image and disordered eating among other social identity groups, particularly in Western Europe and North America. But I think 
research in the rest of the world is certainly beginning to catch up. Mm. Um, there is a lot more research being done, particularly in Asia, for example. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of new research on body image being done, particularly in China and Malaysia, um, mm. South America as well is catching up. So I think we're beginning to see, I think, what would what some might define as a truly globalized research on body image. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And in your experience, I know you've done a lot of research in non-Western countries. Are there any like particular challenges in doing that kind of research, that kind of cross-cultural research? I think there are a number of, of challenges. I think the main one is the fact that most body image measures were developed for use, primarily among Western societies. Um, if you look at the kind of the traditional scales that we use to measure body image, most of these were developed in North America or Western Europe or Australia. Uh, and one of the problems we have when we go to a new culture to kind of analyze body image, for example, is that we have to translate and validate these measures. A lot of the research that I've seen being conducted in, in particularly non-Western or developing sites typically don't use validated measures or haven't properly validated these measures. So we're not getting a true picture of what the body image issues might be. And I think this is this is due to a number of reasons. I think one of the main barriers to research cross-culturally in, in terms of body image is um, the requirement that all authors have to be able to publish in English. Um, right. Particularly authors who are not native English speakers, this might be a serious problem because mm-hmm. it, it presents a natural barrier for us publishing in English language journals. Uh, and I suspect that many authors are choosing to publish in their own language journals and so we're not really getting a true glimpse of what research might be done. The other big problem I I think is that where cross-cultural research is beginning to emerge there is a typical format which is that a non- uh, a Western researcher would collaborate with a Western researcher. So the Western researcher typically frames the research questions, designs the experiments or designs the studies, and the non-Western researcher simply carries out the, the, re- the proposed research. And I think there is a much greater need for what I would term indigenous research, a kind of research mm-hmm. focused on key issues that are focused on cross-cultural issues, or more specifically issues that are relevant to a particular national or cultural group. Um, Having said that, I think one of the kind of related barrier is the fact that there is much less research funding uh, for research that is being conducted in non-Western sites. Yeah, I think that's really a really important point. So we hear a lot about like the globalization of appearance ideals. Um, so that what's being viewed as aspirational when it comes to appearance is becoming increasingly similar regardless of where you are in the world. And I wonder if that's your perception and if that's what something that you've noticed and, and been finding. I, I think that the, the, the term globalization of appearance ideals I find it slightly problematic, right. and we can talk about why it's problematic, but I think the issue for me is that I think it gives the connotation that there is a source of these appearance ideals which are being globalized. Mm-hmm. I think I prefer the term homogenization of appearance ideals, right. which simply refers to the tendency that there is increasingly a standard view of what is acceptable in terms of an appearance ideal, and that appearance ideal is now being homogenized across across many different parts of the globe. I think we've seen that trend certainly in Western Europe and North America beginning in the 1920s, particularly with Thin Ideal, for example. Mm-hmm. That's become homogenized in terms of what is acceptable for a woman to look like. She wants to be successful. She wants to be feminine. Mm-hmm. Similar since the 1980s, probably 1990s, we've seen a homogenization of the muscular ideal for men. Right. And I think that homogenization is now spreading out and probably has spread out for quite some time to other parts of the world. 
Yeah, we, we definitely see that. And I, I think I agree with you with the term of homogenization of appearance ideals, maybe more so than the, the globalization. It's something that I seem to keep seeing uh, from time to time. So now I want to go on into, into some of the work that you've done. I think some of the studies that you've done have, have been really fascinating. So I just want to see what some of your thoughts are and maybe if you can tell our listeners a little bit more. There's a study that you did in 2010 where I think you asked nearly I think it's 7,500 participants from 26 different countries about female body size ideals. And I think, um, if I remember correctly, one of your main findings was that the differences in body size ideals differed more based on income than on the country that they were based on. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that and maybe why you think that was the case. So the study you're referring to was was part of the International Body Project, which right. was a collaboration between, um, I, I think it was something like 58 or 60 scientists and independent mm-hmm. scholars across the globe. And what wow. we asked participants okay. in the 26 countries to do, I think there were about 40 different research sites in the, in the study as well. What we asked them to do mm-hmm. was to rate uh, on a standardized scale what they perceived to be the, the ideal body size. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the sites, is worth noting, uh, were of relatively high socioeconomic status. So they were mm-hmm. fairly um, either the kind of nation capital or a developed city in most of these countries. And what we found was that in general, there were small differences across the world regions in terms of what was perceived as the ideal body size. But we went on to argue that the effect size, so the magnitude of these differences mm-hmm. were relatively small. And this kind of um, corroborates the point we were talking about before, which is that there is a homogenization of thin ideal right. in most of the research sites that we've looked at. There was there were larger differences across and some sites, and these were particular. These were specifically within countries, and particularly across research sites that varied in socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So, more specifically, we found that um, there was a preference for a heavier or a larger body size in sites of relatively low socioeconomic status compared to sites of high socioeconomic status. Um, and this is a relatively robust finding across a number of different studies that we've done, um, not just in not just in the International Body Project. So, we've done a number of studies in Malaysia, for example, mm-hmm. where we've asked participants from high socioeconomic sites compared to a a mid uh, or kind of moderate socioeconomic site with a rural group of low socioeconomic site and you see a quite nice linear trend in body size ideal so the thinnest figure was preferred by the high socioeconomic group and the heaviest figure was preferred by the rural group and and why do you think that might be i think i think there are a number of factors um I think in in this particular study um, in the the International Body Project, for example, we looked at the the predictive power of media exposure, particularly to Western media. And we found that as Western media increased in a particular site or exposure to Western media increased, so did the preference for a thinner ideal. A second reason, which is much more theoretical, is based on the idea of of what fat symbolizes. So body fat Mm -hmm. essentially stores calories. Yeah. Uh, if you imagine you live in a, in a in say a rural village somewhere, someone who's able to put on body fat would symbolize or signify the fact that they have access to calorie or access to resources mm-hmm. that will allow them to put on calories. So in a rural context, for example, body fat might symbolize wealth or even kind of access to resources. Mm-hmm. So in those so in those socioeconomic sites, body fat might actually be valued because it signifies access to resources. In a in a site of higher socioeconomic status, on the other hand body or excess body fat might actually symbolize something very different, might symbolize relatively low socioeconomic status, whereas someone of high socioeconomic status would have access to, for example, to a gym mm-hmm. or the kind of the, um, the cost of, of eating healthily and so on. So you signify your, your, your wealth and access to resources in different ways mm-hmm. through body fat. 
Yeah, sure. And then I think something else that I think is interesting, because that study, that particular study focused on body size. But of course, there are many other aspects of appearance that are salient globally. I'm thinking maybe especially about skin colour. And I wonder, um, and I know this is just kind of like speculating, but what do you think, you know, do you think the findings would be similar if you tested any other aspect of appearance when you're looking across all of these different countries? So I think with, with other appearance ideals, the picture gets slightly complicated because I think that with a thin ideal we know a lot about and we know there are specific factors that predict preference for a thin ideal. With something like skin tone, I think there is a lot more cultural variance. I think Mm -hmm. in general there is a preference for lighter skinned uh, individuals in most most research sites. but there is also a, a cultural problem, which is the history and legacy of colonialism and mm. imperialism, which engendered a preference for whiteness in most most parts of the world. It's so a kind of parsing out what the actual factors that lead to this preference for lighter skinned individuals is really difficult. And on top of that, you have a, a, a kind of a, a, a weird cultural dimension as well, which is. If you live in a rich society of high socioeconomic status, you signify your wealth by going to warmer climates on holiday, for example, mm-hmm. or using skin tanning and so on. And tan skin then becomes symbolic of wealth. So I think there are different trade-offs and different factors. Sure. But I think in general, I, I think appearance ideals are being homogenized across the okay. globe. Um, there will be pockets of resistance, there will be pockets of, of, of negotiation and, 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 and challenges to the kind of standardization of, of appearance ideals. For example, there's really useful work done by Eileen Anderson Fine in Belize, where she argues that the thin ideal is negotiated rather than simply assimilated and adopted. She argues that most women or young women in Belize, for example, mm-hmm. adopt what she calls a Coca-Cola body shape. Right. And so they kind of negotiate both curves, but also relative thinness within their own cultural context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because we have here now, I think there's that whole piece of borrowing cultural ideals from from black culture really from like kind of like and I'm thinking a lot about the Kardashians in terms of like mm-hmm. body shape um and it's I feel like there's a bit of pick and choosing and how that works um but I wonder in terms of like negotiating different parts of the ideal if we have more of that even what that would look like but um, I think it's one of the interesting things about a globe mm-hmm. increasingly globalized world it's not just we pick and choose I think Appearance ideals are increasingly challenged and we have greater opportunities to challenge appearance ideals mm-hmm. and negotiate them to our own individual needs, but also our social needs. Right. I use the example of the protein ad worlds quite a bit. Do you remember yeah. the protein ad worlds? They were on the on the tube and they asked women if they were beach, beach body, body ready. Yeah. Um, when the when the ads first came out, there was a lot of um, dissatisfaction with the with these ads because mm-hmm. I think they, they, they not only symbolized the cult of thinness that most women were expected to aspire to and not surprisingly lots of women and men started defacing the, the posters yeah. and protein world then took the ads to the, the subway in new york and very quickly women in new york and, and men didn't need to be told to go and defail or kind of think about this they went and in kind of almost instantaneously started defacing these posters right. and i think that's a very small example of how in an increasing globalized world we have also opportunities for discussion opportunities for sharing our, our issues and sharing our, our concerns about body image issues and i think given how we communicate now across globe across boundaries across mm-hmm. borders there is greater scope for challenging and also negotiating what we might perceive to be unrealistic ideals yeah just via social media a backlash maybe to being told to look a certain way 
mm-hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. So I want to follow up on, I want to ask you about one of your other papers that was called The Cultural Influences on Body Size Ideals, in which you kind of pass out the influence of westernization and then modernization on body size ideals. And I wonder if you could explain a bit about these two processes and how they affect body size ideals um, and maybe body image more broadly for our listeners. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting and important point. So if we take the example of, of the thin ideal, for example, mm-hmm. we know that there has been a kind of homogenization across across different parts of the globe. Uh, and the, the most dominant and traditional explanation of why this has occurred um, is focused on, on the globalization of, of Western media. Um, so essentially, the argument, which kind of we trace back to the psychiatrist Mervat Nasser, who wrote in the 1980s, she argued in her studies of Egyptian women that the, the primary reason why why there was a rise uh, in in rates of disordered eating and negative body image among Egyptian women in the mid 1980s was because of the uh, incorporation of Western media in Egypt at the time. And Western media essentially came along and they proposed or promoted a thin ideal. And Egyptian women essentially internalized this ideal. And as a result, they suffered from negative body image. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book, um, it's a seminal book, Culture and Weight Consciousness, in which she argued that the transculturality of thinness was essentially a function of exposure to, to Western media. Um, if you kind of want to broaden out this argument slightly, Western media don't just promote the thin ideal. They also promote um, values that go beyond the idealization of thinness. For example, they will promote the, the veneration of youth in and of itself, they'll promote the idealization of consumerism. And probably most importantly, they'll promote the idea that the physical self is malleable, that you can work on the body right. and that work on the body is required. If you want to be a, a, a person who, who is considered to be human, you have to work on the body. Mm-hmm. So this kind of body ethos, working on the body is, is a requirement. And that's promoted through Western media quite a lot. Anne Becker has done a lot of work in, in, in the South Pacific, for example, where she argues that the introduction of Western TV didn't just introduce young women in Fiji to, to, to thinness. They also introduced all kinds of other aspects related aspects like things like working on the body and also increasingly view increasingly forced women to think of their body as part of a consumerist lifestyle which they could change quite quite easily mm-hmm. now my argument is that i think it would be easy to blame everything on western media right. um, and i don't think that's quite quite the end of the story one of the real difficulties is how do we separate out the the influence of western media from those of modernization uh, in a right. country that that's increasingly modernizing there will obviously be increasing exposure to different forms of media and i think the two the two concepts are inherently linked the westernization but also modernization are inherently linked but i think you can see different processes and this goes back to the idea of, of what body fat symbolizes so right. body fat symbolizes um, um, access to resources and one of the big changes in most developing societies as it modernizes is what's known as the nutrition transition uh, more specifically as a society develops there is a shift from traditional diets high in fiber to a diet higher in sugar and fats as well as more sedentary lifestyles so people are becoming uh, relatively heavier as a result mm-hmm. of just simple modernization that has right. nothing to do really with westernization uh, but that also has symbolic implications for the nature of body fat and what that symbolizes, which is what we we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some experimental data to suggest that this, that this kind of aspect of it might be true. So we asked British participants in a, quite an early study, we asked British participants uh, to to rate, to kind of indicate what their ideal female body size was uh, as 
uh, when they were either hungry or satiated, so mm-hmm. when they had a meal. And we found that the hungry participants rated a significantly heavier body size as being ideal compared to the satiated participants, which would fit with the theory of resource security yeah. and also fits with this idea of modernization in, 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 in a more broader term. So the perspective that kind of emerges is one that westernization is not the sole cause for the homogenization of the yeah. thin ideal. Uh, there are really, really complex links between westernization and, 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 and modernization. Do you want me to talk about very briefly about Malaysia? I can do yeah, that. I'd, I'd love you to. Yeah, that'd be great. And so if you look at Malaysia, it's a very, mm-hmm. it's a very useful example. So Malaysia deregulated um, its, its mass media in, in the 1980s and early 1990s. And that led to an influx of, of new Western programming. It was mm-hmm. the first time in Malaysia that you had real Western shows on TV. I remember growing up in Malaysia at the time and mm-hmm. you see all these cartoons. And it was the first time uh, you saw Western forms of media, really. Before that, it was all local programming. Right. So really in the 1980s and 1990s, for the first time, you had new programming coming on TV from, from Western and sources, typically America, uh, which promoted the thin ideal. Uh, and, and young men and women were told that this is what it, what it means to be attractive. This is what it means to, 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 be, to be attractive in this particular society. But in tandem with that, you also had rapid economic development, you had urbanization. So more, more and more people were shifting in terms of what they ate, in terms mm-hmm. of their diet. Also, increasingly, you had sedentary lifestyles. And um, there was also more generally a kind of uh, a, a renegotiation of what I call the national identity. What does right. it mean to be a Malaysian? Uh, so mm-hmm. it meant a lot of different things in the 1980s, but increasingly it became homogenized and we, we adopted cultural values from different parts of the globe, particularly from the West, uh, about what it meant to be an, a, an individual within a, an increasingly complex uh, society. There was also a shift from collectivism, so mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of shared values across different, different social groups towards individualism, there was greater consumerism, all of these things, I think, have meant that there is an increasing homogenization of beauty ideals, not just in Malaysia, but other similar yeah. countries as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm off to Malaysia next week, so I'm going to have to have a look out yeah. for what I notice over there. So that's exciting. So I want to ask, I know you've done so much cross-cultural research, and I just wonder, over the years whilst you've been doing it, what, if anything, really surprised you, um, either in terms of your findings or around the research process? I don't think anything really surprises me anymore. Uh-huh. I, I, when I first started doing research on body image, I think one of the things that did surprise me, this is about 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. one of the things that did surprise me was the real lack of research, uh, particularly in non-Western sites. I have I, always thought that by focusing on issues of body image among particularly among Western Europe and North American groups, we kind of neglect the issue, the real issues of what it means to have body image issues or mm-hmm. what it means to have negative body image or positive body image or disordered eating yeah. in the rest of the world. Because I don't think that the, the issues, and certainly I don't think the factors that lead to the negative body image are necessarily the same across all different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And even though there might be a homogenization of, of appearance ideals, I think there is still a need to understand how local factors might influence um, appearance ideals. One of the things I, I've always struggled with is this idea that it's only Western media that promotes thin ideals. Actually, if you look at a lot of indigenous media, so local media in, mm-hmm. in local contexts, they similarly propo- promote a thin ideal. Again, to use the example of Malaysia, a lot of local programming will denigrate being overweight, will denigrate mm. being uh, not thin. So again, you yeah. have similar processes, but you can't simply blame it on Western media because I think a lot of local programming mirrors the same the same issues. Yeah, and I, again, I don't know if you would agree, but I still feel like there's not... Um, I think we know more about body image in, in cross-cultural contexts 
but I also don't think that we know what you're just saying in terms of what are the some of the risk factors leading up and how they differ. I think there's not re- there's not all of that research. So in terms of when we're thinking about designing interventions, thinking about the risk factors, are the interventions that we design here or in the US or in Australia going to be as effective or acceptable or appropriate in in a cross-cultural context? Yeah, I so. couldn't agree more. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. I think one of the issues is, firstly, I think in, in, in many non Western European and North American sites, the prevalence estimates, I think, are not necessarily robust enough for us to make mm-hmm. judgments about what is uh, what is prevalent in terms of negative body image or disordered eating. So that's the first issue. And that goes back to kind of the use of trans- valid translated measures. Mm-hmm. The second issue is I think we, we kind of, most researchers who are working in non-Western sites have adopted a Western perspective. They've right. simply borrowed terms and factors that we know work in Western societies and have applied it to non-Western research sites. And I think there is still a real lack of research, particularly good qualitative research mm-hmm. about body image and disordered eating in non-Western sites. And I think the real the real problem, I think, is that why can we use this term indigenous psychology essentially local psychologies understanding local experiences understanding mm-hmm. local lived experiences i think there's still a real dearth of research in that aspect right so then do you think like the starting point then is more like qualitative research in local sites so the starting point or maybe the priority when we're thinking about um kind of expanding our our knowledge about body image around the world so then we can, you know, design interventions and and things to help people globally rather than just helping people in certain countries. I think qualitative and quantitative research go in hand in hand. Yeah. I, I think my my kind of point is more that I think if you want to try and understand local issues and, yeah. and the lived experience of say an individual in a local place in a local site, you need to start from their qualitative experiences. What are their what are their, right. their kind of issues that they are facing? And from there, you can begin to put, if you need to, put together quantitative measures mm-hmm. of body image that are specific to that local site. I think, from my point of view, I think kind of putting together these kinds of local variants of body image measures have very little practical value because right. you, you don't get to compare across research sites or across national groups. I think borrowing tools, body image tools from, from, from what has been developed in the West, is I think, I think the kind of key point, though, is that I think what we have done in the West is is valid and reliable for the most yeah. part. You can use these tools to measure accurately body image issues in non-Western sites, but it does require good knowledge about how these tools should be validated, how they should be translated before we get to that process. I don't think it's fair to assume that just because a tool has been validated in one cultural context, it will be applied in the set of scores on that measure will be the same uh, yeah. in a different yeah. cultural context. And yeah. you can't go around you can't go around comparing scores until you've done all the kind of the statistical methodologies and issues that have to be worked on. Sure. And then I also wonder um, about just in terms of, I think here we're used to talking about body image or at least hearing about body image. It's kind of something that comes up in in conversation quite a lot. I don't know if that's necessarily the case uh, globally. So then even when we're talking about and asking people about body image, how open people might be, how responsive people might be to, to thinking and having those kind of conversations or filling out those questionnaires, which, you know, either or whichever way it's going, mm-hmm. it's going to be. And I wonder um, if that maybe makes it more of a challenge and how you kind of get around that is something I, I think about and think is 
interesting. I, I don't know if that's something that you've noticed. I think it's or... not just an issue for, for research, it's yeah. also an issue for practical policy. Right. If if, a, if a, a politician, for example, doesn't understand what a body image is or doesn't understand what factors might lead to body image, makes a body image or disordered eating, mm-hmm. A, they're not going to fund research and B, they're not going to take any practical steps to, right. to intervene. One of the big issues we're seeing is the rise in negative body image across the globe. It's become yeah. a real public health yeah. concern because of the reliable association with disordered eating and yeah. so on. But in most developing societies, there still isn't adequate psychiatric care for issues like negative yeah, body yeah. vision disordered eating. So to expect the kind of one size fits all kind of approach is problematic in itself. But that also means that we need localized um, healthcare strategies to deal with 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 the kind of globalization and, and homogenization of, of appearance ideals, but also negative body image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. What are your priorities in terms of moving forward there? I think in terms of cross-cultural research, I think for a lot of researchers, I think the priority at the moment has to be in constructing valid and reliable tools. That has to be the starting point. Once you have that, you can start to do better research. You Mm -hmm. can start to look at the factors that might predict negative body image or disordered eating. Without that, you can't get anywhere. So I think, for example, in Malaysia, we started up a program where we're validating and looking at the the validity of a lot of different measures of body image. So we Mm -hmm. have that basis in which we can start to look at, for example, intervention techniques or intervention measures methods mm-hmm. but without that you can't really get anywhere yeah okay I could ask you so many more questions but I want to um, wrap this up so our, the episode doesn't go on for hours so at the end of each interview we ask the same question it's a you know it's a fun one so at the center for appearance research we have a weekly cake and coffee morning where members of the center take it in turns to bring in cake so if you were able to join us one week and I hope one one week you can come along down to Bristol what cake would you bring and why um, asking me to bake a cake is probably the worst <laughs> idea uh, you could have. So if I was going to bring a cake, I'd probably be really contrarian. Can I bring donuts instead? Because I love donuts. You can. Donuts do go down very well here. That definitely has been done before. And I think um, I it's always enjoyed. Donut ones, which I loved. I'll which ones? Them. Jam ones? Peanut butter and oh, jam. Peanut butter and jam. Oh, I've never had one of those. They would. That would be great. <laughs> Um, well, Viram, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really informative. It's been really interesting hearing what you've had to say on cross-cultural research. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. There were so many interesting points raised there. And one thing that really stood out for me right at the beginning was what Viram was saying about published papers being mainly in English and how like, and how then it's quite difficult to collate other research papers that might not even be acknowledged if they're not in English because we don't understand them. And so globally, it's quite difficult. Yeah, and then I think for me as well, the, I'm really glad he brought up the Malaysian stuff. Yeah. Uh, Malaysia's where my mum grew up and obviously I've just spent a few weeks there earlier this year. So that was, I'm, I'm really glad he pulled that in. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really excited for him to come and visit us at CAR and uh, bring some peanut butter and jam donuts. He uh, better do that. They sounded amazing. I really want to try them too. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's hear from our final guest, CAR's Kirsty Garbett. Kirsty is a research associate at CAR and is part of the Dove Self-Esteem Project research team led by Philippa. Kirsty is really passionate about doing body image research in non-Western cultures and how interventions to improve body image can be adapted and applied to diverse global contexts. In 2017, Kirsty spent some time in Accra, Ghana, doing ethnographic field research on women's body image. Hi Kirsty, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Great. So, first question for you 
What was the purpose of your research in Ghana? So what kind of was you hoping to find out? Um, so I went to Ghana 18 months ago, so June 2017, um, to conduct some kind of exploratory research into young women's body image. Yeah. As you and Nadia mentioned earlier, body image really is a global issue, and it's always kind of surprised and troubled me how little we know um, about the concerns of women um, beyond our kind of Eurocentric US view. I chose Ghana specifically as an area of interest as from an economical and development viewpoint, drastic changes are occurring in this country, as well as many other countries in Africa, particularly with the rise of urbanisation. This shift is undoubtedly impacting women's bodies and societal perceptions of women's bodies. For example, um, throughout my study site in Accra, the capital of Ghana, um, statistics show that women's bodies are growing, getting larger, Mm. um, as a consequence of urbanisation. So changing lifestyles, changing food culture. Whilst this is not a concern in its own right with regards to body image, this is happening at exactly the same time as women are becoming more and more exposed to the Western idea of beauty. So that is slim, toned women's bodies that... um, more often than not white. So I was really interested to know what impact this was having on women's satisfaction with their own bodies um, and how women navigate these Western images of what beauty is in a society that has very traditionally admired a much larger, more curvaceous figure. That's really interesting, like the contrast between what they've previously viewed as what they might think is beautiful and then the Western impact from the media that might you know, conflict with these other beauty ideals that they may have. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, what did women tell you or what did you notice when you were there then? From kind of the get-go, I realised that there was there was a huge amount of pressure on women to kind of look right. Even before announcing myself as kind of a, a researcher interested in body ideals and body image, it became very obvious that a lot of people saw women's appearance as kind of the single most important characteristic of a woman. Um, it's just kind of embedded in their culture. And it just felt like women's bodies were under constant scrutiny. And it was also, it seemed very acceptable to talk about women's bodies in Ghana. Um, I guess body talk is very, very prevalent. Um, One woman said several times throughout one interview, um, people talk. And I asked her what she meant by that. And she said that being a woman in Ghana, you can be three things. You can be too fat, you can be too thin, or you could be scrutinised for changing your body weight. So... For example, if you, if you are considered too fat, it means that you are lazy, those kind of connotations that we have in the US. It might also mean, which I thought was really interesting, that you're cheating on your husband because it's showing... <laughs> okay, explain. So they, um, yeah, so they were, they were saying that essentially if you're getting fatter, you're obviously eating more than one evening meal at night and that must only be with more than one man. Um, wow, so interesting. That, yeah, really yeah. interesting. And then the, the other end of the spectrum, women could be deemed too thin and therefore they, you know, they have a, some kind of disease. And then I thought it was really interesting is if you were stigmatised for being too fat and you tried to lose weight, why are you doing that? Like the community would talk about why is it this woman wants to lose weight? Is she trying to leave her husband or very much centred around the woman's relationship with the man? Right. So there's lots and lots of things going on and it just felt like women could never get it right. Mm. And there was also um, women were telling me that People will talk about you and about your body in front of you and it's kind of their culture that you're not allowed to kind of complain about this even though it deeply may hurt your feelings as you would expect. Women would very much do that in private and not vocalise, you know, however how they might be feeling when this kind of stuff is spoken about. In terms of what the ideal was, it was interesting to find that not many women would mention the word thin 
or slim when they described what the ideal appearance was. Recurring comments from women that I spoke to, it was very much about having a flat stomach and a big bum. Um, and in some areas of the city, lighter skin was also high on the on things that women would desire. But essentially, it was this very kind of curvaceous figure that was seen as the key trait to have to be beautiful. I actually got a couple of women just to kind of break down barriers in interviews to draw what the ideal kind of silhouette for a woman would be. Oh, yeah. On, on every occasion, they would draw like a very accentuated kind of egg timer shape. Right. Um, but a completely unrealistic image of a, you know, a really heavy top, very, very slim waist, and then very, very wide hips. Right. Which they would deem like kind of the Coca-Cola shape. I'm really intrigued as well, actually, about the point you made with regards to not kind of verbally body shaming themselves mm. in the open because I feel that kind of in our culture especially as women it's very easy to body shame in fact being negative about one's body is more of a thing that people women would be likely to talk about than to actually compliment themselves or mm. other women's bodies so they have these conflicting beauty ideals and also these beauty ideals that are prominent but also they can't verbalize those things they're very internal it seems yeah internal about their own body image but the fact that other people are allowed to have opinions on women's bodies i found fascinating yeah so i you know i would frequently have um people tell me what they thought of my body completely unsolicited from me but it's just it's within their culture that you know women's bodies are are up for debate you know they're very much yeah. yeah, but for you to be, or someone else to be, a woman to be negative about her own body is mm. actually quite, it's not very normal yeah. within that context, Yeah, which is interesting in contrast to quite westernised things where yeah. that's quite a normal thing, Yeah, um, unfortunately, in, in comparison to being quite open mm. and confident mm. about the way that we look. So yeah, that's a really great point. Um, moving on, you also spoke to women across different income levels, didn't you? What did you find with that then? Yeah, um, so it became very apparent kind of very early on in the development of this study looking at body image in Ghana that it wasn't going to be um, as simple as just doing a study of young Ghanaian women. There's over a hundred kind of ethnic groups and tribes within Ghana, so it became very apparent that I was going to kind of have to narrow things down a little yeah. bit. So the, the first way of doing that was to, to look at an urban site because they're the areas that are going to be exposed to kind of Western media. And when you say urban site, what do you mean exactly with that? Is that an actual specific region that you're concentrating on? Yeah, so I focused on um, this, the capital city, Accra, okay. um, but equally there's, there's other cities that I could have based the focus of the study on, and they yeah. might have, I might have found very different things happening in different regions. But for this study, I kind of wanted to look at like, you know, a small... Localised area... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but what somewhere where these kind of Western images are really infiltrating and kind of like what Vera and Swami was saying about the um, the differences between high and low income areas. I thought that that was going to be really important as well. And I kind of had that in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until I actually kind of touched down um, in Ghana that that really, really became apparent about the inequalities within a city. Cities are not like what we would usually find in, say, the UK in terms of segregated areas for the rich and poor. Right. Um, in Accra, particularly, there's very, very rich areas of the city, and to the back of that, there can be a very, very deprived area, and there's very, very different systems happening in both of those places. So I kind of wanted to try and get an idea of, you know, okay, so what's going on in the high-income areas, but I was also particularly keen to look in the low-income areas because that's where we're really lacking in the research. 
So in terms of what I found, um, the women in the high income areas are doing many of the things that we, we kind of see in the West in order to achieve that kind of curvaceous, slim figure. Mm. Um, so going to the gym, drinking protein shakes, eating low carb diets, um, eating fruits and vegetables, etc. Interestingly, Weight Watchers has fairly recently expanded its market to Ghana, um, very much looking at the kind of high income areas. Interesting. In these areas, appearance um, played a role in the types of jobs people felt that they could get, with many front-facing customer service jobs kind of only being available to those considered beautiful. And of course, in Ghana, there's no regulation for this kind of thing. Mm. Um, It's openly spoken about. So they really felt that pressure Mm. when it comes to jobs to look a certain way for a certain job. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, why why are you taking part in these beauty practices? A lot of the responses I was getting was, well, to get a job. I need to look this way. And also in these high income areas, there's those kind of health messages that you get here in the UK surrounding health and weight. And there is more and more this ingrained belief that being slim is kind of healthy in these middle and low income areas of Ghana. So that assumption is being pulled through into those areas too. Yeah, which I think is a fairly recent transition. Okay. Um, As kind of more frequently you've got kind of gyms popping up and like protein shaped bars and things which perhaps weren't then 10 15 years ago Mm. um and then on the other hand you've got the low-income areas of urban ghana and for me this is where things became really interesting so the ideal in terms of kind of body shape and size remained similar but the behaviors women were performing to try and match the ideal was very different so in these areas like gym access to fresh fruit vegetables just completely non-existent Hmm. going for a run down the road just isn't an option when the streets are dirty it's incredibly hot it's incredibly humid they don't they can't go home to a a house that's um got air air (laughs) conditioning yeah exactly they're not going to be able to cool down so these these types of behaviors are just not going to happen however this has given rise to a whole host of kind of magic pills and potions um, as you call it, it's yeah. <laughs> a good way. Terminology. That's a way, good way of describing it. Yes, for sure. Um, so women, yet yeah, that women are kind of encouraged to buy and invest in to regulate their body weight and shape. So women in these areas and um, would tell me about kind of so-called magic creams, which these women believed that they could they kind of rub on their stomachs and in circular motions kind of push the body fat from their stomach onto their bum to achieve that flat stomach, big bum look that they're going for. Waist trainers are also um, in high demand, um, but are very, very expensive for the residents in these areas to buy, quote, the good ones. Women were also choosing to wear these waist trainers for much longer than is recommended in kind of their desperate attempt to achieve the kind of ideal silhouette. Yeah. I guess what was really worrying for me is the the, the pills that they take um, to either gain weight or to to lose weight. You could buy pills for either or. They're completely unregulated, so there would be people typically young men walking up and down the street in kind of regular clothes, ready to sell these products to women. So it is it is a concern that they come with no information about, you know, what's in them, what they do. What kind of does the packaging actually look like from these men that are walking up and down the street selling mm. these unregulated pills of no information attached? Mm. Mm. So they come in, from the ones that I saw anyway, they come in kind of a blister pack, but they don't come with the kind of outside cardboard packaging or the kind of information sheet that tells you how many to take, when to take them, side effects. None of that was present, so it's just, it was just in these blister packs. So it genuinely could be anything that they are taking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually have a quote here that I found online since returning from Ghana um, because I was told that you can also buy these pills online. 
And I've actually got a quote here from the online kind of website that was selling this product. And I'll just read it. It says, um, they are a natural herbal product that stimulates your gluteus maxims to grow layers of fat around the hips, buttock and thigh area. If you are skinny with a fast metabolism, these pills and creams will slow your metabolism down and redirect the fat calories to transfer into your buttocks and thigh area. If you have a full figure, then our pill will transfer your excess weight from your belly and waist into your buttocks area, giving you that desired hourglass figure. Hmm, sounds nice. Wait, wait, Unquote. wait. What? <laughs> Hang on a second. This same pill is going to make those two things... Mm. opposing things quite frankly speeding up or slowing down one's metabolism this same pill is going to do this same pill same pill and it's just it's super worrying that, that this is happening and that basically women are being exploited because of their lack of education and understanding about what bodies can do and the idea that this pill is going to miraculously know what your mind wants your body to do and is just going to be able to you know make that happen so i think this is a real current concern right now I think undoubtedly we need to look at the overriding problem about the importance placed on women's appearance in Ghana um, but in the shorter term we really need to educate women at a really basic level about what bodies can and can't do and what pills and creams can and cannot do I mean I completely agree I think the fact that these messages are out there for these women to consume means that we need to equip them with the knowledge to mm-hmm. understand where these messages are coming from and how you know crazy they actually sound in essence that that's that's not going to happen mm. because how she would believe it if you didn't know any different yeah and when there's no other option available to you and that's what all you're, you're left do? with you put faith in these kind of products and pills and i just think if nothing else we need to educate women that you know that is not the way to yeah. go about regulating the body that's really fascinating so I have one last question, and I would wonder if I can ask it to you, because it's quite a personal one. Um, Mm. Because you are Caucasian, I know you've reflected a lot on this aspect. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on this, and what role did it have, and maybe how did women in Ghana kind of respond to you in in that moment? Um, It's a really interesting question, and it is something that I've reflected on, I guess, both before I went out there. It was something that was very conscious of. Um, while I was out there and then also since I've been back you know 18 months on I'm still kind of thinking through some of these issues and how we move forward as a field but generally my presence was very positively received it was very encouraging and humbling that every person I approached to kind of talk with me perhaps do a more kind of formal interview everyone agreed research sometimes isn't that easy yeah Um, (laughs) so I mean even people I didn't approach wanted to talk to me and, and to be honest, in both a personal and kind of professional context, I don't think I've ever been received with such enthusiasm before as I did when I was in Ghana. Hmm. Um, so from that perspective, things were really, really great. Um, I did get the impression from women that they really did want their voices heard. And I think whether rightly or wrongly, um, I think they felt that talking to me would allow that to happen. Like, it would, you know, their voices would be kind of put on the kind of right channels to kind of be heard and their issues be kind of raised to a higher level. However, um, despite feeling incredibly welcome 
by being Caucasian and coming from a very um, kind of privileged background, um, also came with its challenges. And I guess there's kind of three things that come to mind with this question. First of all, kind of acknowledging and appreciating cultural sensitivities. So there were certain social and cultural differences um, which are incredibly challenging at times. And I think you kind of need to accept that doing this kind of research really is a step into the unknown. No amount of reading about Ghanaian culture and life in Ghana could have prepared me for what I kind of came up against while I was in Ghana, mainly because this topic of conversation just hasn't been discussed in Ghana before. I think a big part of it was, for me, was being open to opportunities and experiences. So there was one day where I got talking to a a girl through the advice of my research assistant, and by the end of the day, I was taking part in a Shake Your Beauty competition with sex workers. And never could I have imagined that was what was going to happen that day. Yeah. But it was kind of going out there without too much of an agenda and just letting myself, just, just rolling Seeing with it. Seeing where it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There would be no point in going to Ghana with a very strict kind of theoretical framework of what I wanted to find. Because if I had, perhaps I would have found that. It was really important for me to go out there and just kind of roll up my sleeves and get involved and see what I found out. And some of the greatest conversations I had was you know, sitting in a restaurant at the end of a hard day of doing research and having a chat with someone. Mm. So I think, um, although it was a challenge that I didn't know what I was doing from one day to the next, it was having faith that it was all part of the learning curve. Relatedly, and kind of the second big challenge, was accepting that I tripped up on more than one occasion in doing this kind of research. I guess it's part of the parcel of doing any kind of research, but particularly cross-culturally things are going to go wrong and kind of accepting that things are going to go wrong. So simple things. So early on when I was interviewing women, I kept noticing that they were looking at the floor or looking away from me when they spoke to me. And I kind of took that as a sign of they're not interested in me talking to them. Let's kind of wrap things up and move on. Yeah. Um, And it was only later on when I was talking to Peter, who was my research assistant in Ghana, Ghanaian graduate, that he explained to me that that was actually a sign of respect and not to be put off by that. So simple things like that that I thought were really difficult. I really needed his advice and guidance on how to kind of navigate that kind of thing because I didn't know that. Look away you're not interested. Yeah. That wasn't what was happening at all. Another big assumption that I made when planning this fieldwork trip was my research assistant from Ghana would have to be female. It just made intuitive sense to me that having a female research assistant would kind of know where to go, who to talk to, and would be able to strike up those conversations with women. Hmm. While I was out there, I had two research assistants, a male and a female. And there was really stark differences in the responses I was getting to my questions when I had the the male and the female research assistant. So with the female, I got very short, sharp responses. People weren't tending to open up to me as much. Whereas with the male research assistant, women were a lot more approachable and a lot more willing to kind of share their beauty practices with me. And I kind of queried this with a a few Ghanaians and they kind of explained to me how women don't talk to other women about beauty practices because it's competitive and they weren't willing to to share their beauty habits with another woman there. I was fine because I was somewhat removed right. from, from Ghanaian culture. That environment. Yeah, but they didn't want to talk about it in front of another Ghanaian woman, which I thought was really interesting and a, a complete error on my part, thinking that a woman would be best placed to do this kind of research. Yeah. So just things like that were like kept cropping up. And I, in those four weeks that I was there, I think I learned so, so much. 
And I think, again, it's showing that you really need to just kind of throw yourself in and be open to things changing. Definitely. Finally, the last thing is whether it was appropriate for me to be conducting this research. I won't go into a lot of detail because I think Viren has already touched upon these points earlier in the podcast when he spoke about the difficulties um, associated with doing cultural appropriate research driven by natives in the country. Mm-hmm. However, I think as body image research becomes more global, we need to be having a lot more conversations about this issue, not only expanding what we understand about body image in different countries, but about who is creating this knowledge, who will be getting on board with our research projects, mm-hmm. and kind of who do we want to be our researchers going forward? You know, Do we want it to continually be dominated by Western researchers, or do we need to start thinking about ways... Of expanding this. Expanding this, and kind of who are the researchers in other countries that can contribute to our knowledge that we already have about what's happening in the West. On that note, I think I would encourage anyone interested in this kind of thing um, to look up the work of Raywin Connell and Linda Tuhui-Smith, who certainly guided my thought processes about this kind of thing and has given me a lot of food for thought along the way. I know for me personally, my research assistant was completely invaluable for me um, when I was out in Ghana, but I wish I kind of looped him in earlier into conversations about the kind of design of the study, the kind of questions I was asking. Mm. And one point that really stood out to me was when you was explaining about how when you was in Ghana, so many women came forward and wanted to participate. And that kind of just shows and highlights how important it is to do research cross-culturally, how important it is to go into other cultures and experience or other cultures within themselves be able to have their own voices heard about their appearance of body images. It's an important topic for everyone, right? Everyone appears, everyone has a body image. Yeah, absolutely. I think this research um, project really highlighted how much of a concern um, appearance is around the world. And just because we're not researching it and not perhaps because it's being spoke about doesn't mean that it's not there. I think a lot of women perhaps hadn't talked about how they felt about this appearance pressure before doesn't mean it wasn't there Mm. it's just that kind of conversation just isn't happening right now yeah Um, and people were quite surprised that that was what I was choosing to study rather than say nutrition or you know maternal health um specifically because that's the kind of research that they're used to this kind of stuff isn't happening um and and it seemed like a key concern for women of course there's other issues happening and particularly in low-income areas of African countries, but it's not to say that this isn't an important one that should be on the agenda. Agreed, definitely. And thank you so much for joining us, Kirsty. It was great to hear about your experience and to hear your findings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed listening to that, and I think it's so nice to hear some of the detail, which I think sometimes gets a bit glossed over when we're doing... Either doing the podcast or doing research in general, I think. Yeah, definitely. And it's nice to hear about researchers doing research in the field and how that is. Yeah, we call it reflexivity, don't we? Kind of like thinking of like your position within the research and then how you feel in, in, in doing it. Yeah, and it's a really important point, actually, to be reflective on yeah. your experiences. Yeah, so I think we probably need to wrap this up. It was a slightly longer episode than usual, but we hope you found it interesting. We know that we definitely did. Definitely. And um, join us next time when we'll be doing our final episode of the year. Ah! (laughs) Maybe we can do them wearing Santa hats, Nadia. Uh, Okay. Okay. I'm bringing the Santa hats, whether you like it it. or not. Got it. Maybe um, mince pies. Can we have mince pies? Oh, of course. Mulled wine. Oh, mulled wine, please. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Put that on the list. (laughs) 